1: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think
0: the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a very special guest. As Star Trek fans, we know him primarily as an actor, but he's also directed four episodes of Voyager and four of Enterprise. And these days, he's a prolific and sought after TV director, having worked on everything from Dawson's Creek to the Orville. And his latest show, Turner and Hooch, is about to debut on Disney. It is, of course, Robert Duncan McNeil. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Very good. Glad to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, this is a topic that I've kind of been wanting to do for a while. We've had a few of the Star Trek writers come on the show in the past to talk about the sort of inspirations behind episodes. We talked to Bran and Braga about his love of horror, for example. But I've always been quite keen to hear what the sort of director's uh, slant is on working on Star Trek. And you, of course, are one of those directors who got their break really as a director through Star Trek and has then gone on to develop that into a career in its own right.
1: Yeah, I'm very grateful for um, for Star Trek giving me the chance to to do something that I had wanted to do for a long time before I ever got involved with um, Voyager. I had I had really had an interest in in uh, getting behind the camera and had been shadowing directors for quite a few years before um, Star Trek happened. So I was already sort of down that path. In fact, I've said this. A lot of times, a lot of places before, but literally day one of the pilot episode of Voyager, we were walking away from the stage and Rick Berman happened to be there and Rick was rarely down on stage. I probably could count on one hand the amount of times I saw him there, but he was there day one and uh, and it was great. You know, we were feeling great, very confident. And as we were walking away, I said to Rick, I said, you know, I just want you to know I've been shadowing. And, uh, you know, mentoring under some directors and, and other TV shows I've been able to work on. And I feel like this is the place for me to get that opportunity. You've done it before with a number of actors and back to the, the film, fran- you know, the original cast franchise with Leonard Nimoy directing. And, mm-hmm. um, and anyway, so I, I, uh, I said, I really want you to know that that's something that I really want to do and he said oh he's he sort of laughed and he said uh he said sure yeah let's see you know once the show gets going maybe in season 5 or something we could you know that's way down the road and i was literally on day 1 of the pilot i said no i mean the first season i want to direct now wow. like, what do i need to do i said mm-hmm. cuz i've been on shows that have gotten canceled before and uh and uh i you know I, I don't want to wait too long, so I'm I won't, I'm taking this seriously, and and um yeah he's you know he still laughed <laughs> thought I was being precocious and uh and and very bold on day one, but I I continued just a drumbeat of you know letting him know what I was doing, and he allowed me to go to production meetings and and screenings producer screenings of of the studio cuts, and um so I got to see that side of things. And obviously I was on set I talked to directors and shadowed a lot of directors and took some classes outside of work. Um, I took some classes at AFI, the American Film Institute. I took classes and workshops through a thing called IFP West, which was a independent feature project, a great um, organization back in the nineties that was really active in uh, independent film and, and emerging filmmakers and anyway I did a lot of that stuff so by uh, late season two when jonathan frakes fell out of an episode rick called me on a saturday and said uh we had somebody fall out and uh, and if you're ready you know you're up next week so <laughs> Yeah, that's what happened.
0: So Jonathan Frakes must have paved the way for you in a couple of ways then, because, I mean, I guess Rick Berman must have been used to actors coming and bending his ear about this particular desire because he'd had it before from Frakes. He'd had uh, quite a few of them on Next Gen had directed. Levi Burton had directed, Patrick Stewart had directed. I can't remember if Michael Dorn had yet, but he certainly did later on DS9. So it seems like Star Trek was a very open environment for actors to make that kind of transition or at least to try their hand that i mean i'm interested that you said you'd already been shadowing on other shows was this something that was quite common in hollywood at the time then and indeed is it is it now is it less common now i sort of feel i haven't heard of it more recently
1: well it was um i don't know how common it was because there weren't a lot of actors that i knew shadowing and trailing directors i didn't know a lot of them but i i did know actors who were you know, it was it was not uncommon for an actor to say, hey, I'd love to get a shot at this someday mm-hmm. if we were on a, on a TV series or something. My fellow cast on other shows I'd done had interest in that. But but I wouldn't say it's common. I'd say it's a, it's a low percentage of actors that really want to follow through and show up and, you know, go to work when you're not filming and go out on scouts when you don't have to. And, you know, uh, but I, I really found it fascinating. and. um Yeah. And, and there was also a side of me back then that I felt like, um, in television, to be frank, there's a, there were a lot of like veteran directors who just showed up and got through it and they didn't help you very much as an actor. They didn't get involved with Mm -hmm. performance or, and I felt as an actor, like, boy, I, if I could learn the other side of things, I feel like I could really be of value to the actors here. And, kind of, you know, helping them to dig deeper or inspire them to, uh, you know, to to get specific about a moment or, or change a performance in a way that really ch- helps the story. So, um, so part of me was like, well, if I can learn that other side of things, this, you know, I could be really good at this. And uh, yeah, so I, and and there's a practical side of things too, where I saw directors seem to have these long careers that didn't, have these peaks and valleys the way that all of my actor friends were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, at that time I had gotten married, married very young. I'd had started having kids uh, at that time when I was quite young and felt uh, a long road ahead of me that I wanted some stability for, you know, being the breadwinner of a family. And so directing seemed like a smart not just creatively exciting, but a smart move, too.
0: They always say as an actor to kind of have other irons in the fire, don't they? It's, that's sort of what I'm curious. Is it? I think for, for some of the Trek actors, it seems like maybe it was something they just wanted to have a go at, you know, or to try their hand at. Or, or maybe they were planning more, but, it, but, but they didn't take to it. But I think it's quite interesting. It sounds like you were looking at it very much as a kind of career move, as a sort of, not just another string to your bow, but as a kind of parallel career to develop so that you had, you know, more than one option.
1: Yeah. At the time, I really thought if I could get anything going, if I could get some opportunities with this directing thing, that it would supplement my income, that I I, I didn't imagine that I would stop acting, that just because I had been doing that for so long, I couldn't see myself in doing anything else. Um but I thought if I could add the directing to it, then at times when, you know, the acting wasn't keeping me busy, that I could hopefully get a, a job or two, you know, here and there and, um, and supplement. So between the two things, I, I might be able to, uh, you know, have some stability. And when I finished Voyager in 2001, when we finished filming, um, I did a few acting jobs, but I sort of pretty quickly thought, uh, I realized that I didn't want to go in these audition rooms. You know, you used to go in a room, not anymore, especially with COVID. You, actors never come in. It's all on tape mm-hmm. or Zoom, Zoom audition. Um, but at the time, you would go in the room uh, for a, a, an audition and you would meet the writers, the showrunners, the producers, maybe even studio people or network people maybe there. And I didn't want to confuse them that I wasn't a serious director, that I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know what? I've been acting seven years. When, When Voyager finished, I thought I've been acting for seven years. Let me give myself one year. I did a couple of jobs, but then I was like, let me just take a year off of that stuff and really focus on this directing. And that way I'll meet people as a director and I won't meet them in a room as an actor. And then... Try to have a directing conversation, you know, and confuse them in some way. So, let me just give it one year. I'm going to focus on directing, and uh, and that was the year after Voyager finished. And I um, and it was interesting because I think Roxanne Dawson did the same thing. She and I both sort of thought, hey, if we're going to be taken seriously, we've got to put the acting aside for a beat. Uh, I think both of us thought it was just going to be a beat, <laughs> a moment, and then and get some directing traction and then we'll go back to balancing both of these things and uh you know Roxanne and, and myself neither one of us have ever gone back to acting she's got a wonderful directing career I'm very grateful for my directing career has just kept me very busy since uh, Voyager finished so yeah that's 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 how that final piece of the transition sort of happened
0: I'm curious, when you talked about, you know, shadowing these different directors, so you'd been shadowing some on previous shows, then obviously, presumably you were shadowing some working on Voyager. I mean, I'm kind of interested, how is directing Star Trek different to directing on a sort of, uh, you know, a contemporary show or whatever? It seems to me there must be a lot of kind of technical stuff that is very specific. There's a lot of stuff to do with prosthetics and these sort of, you know, performance things. I mean, did, did you find it was a a sort of quite unique kind of learning curve in a way, learning on a Star Trek show, as opposed to, I don't know, a medical drama or whatever it might be.
1: Well, I, I will say what's different about Star Trek, or at least the generation of Star Trek that I was most involved with, you know, the I had been a guest star on Next Gen, regular on Voyager, directing on, on Enterprise. So over those years, Rick Berman was running that franchise and um, the way that the way that Rick Berman made it different than other TV shows is he had a very traditional sensibility in terms of the way that uh, filmmaking should be. For example, in you know, if you look back at old Hollywood movies, it was very rare, almost never did the camera, you know, it was the camera moving in a shot. So a crane shot. And in the middle of that crane shot, you, you, you cut to a close up that's not moving. That was just, it was, it was a no, no. In the old days of Hollywood, there were rules. There was a rule book. In fact, there was a book that I got called the three C's of cinematography back then. And it had been written in the fifties, I think as a textbook for film school or something, but it was basically a rule book about how you shoot a master shot You know, how you shoot a close up, when you cut, what the. And and all of those rules were very traditional. And they were mostly, I would say, 95% of the time followed in most mainstream media, television, film, things like that. Um, Rick Berman's sensibilities were very much in line with those traditions. So I remember Rick saying to me very specifically, if you start a scene with a wide shot and the camera's moving on a dolly, let's say, across the room, he said, I won't cut into the close up until that camera stops. So make okay. sure you shoot it in a way that I can get into the close up, meaning stop the camera <laughs> so he can cut into the close up so that I can change things if I want. Don't have the camera moving all the time, but I do want some movement. Um you know, he he had a he had traditional rules like you know you could you shouldn't shoot a wide shot on a on a, a tripod and then go to handheld on the close-ups or mm-hmm. you know point of view was very important to to Rick you know whose point of view is this shot I, I had I had suggested to him once on an episode of Enterprise that um it, I can't remember the name of the episode but it was about the the crew was climbing deep down into a planet, and uh, so they were rock climbing, you know, cave cave climbing, and traveling constantly. We kept finding them deeper and deeper inside this planet as we cut back and forth. So I mm-hmm. I suggested to Rick, I said, what if we mission? Mich- I think Mission Impossible movie had just come out, or Mission Impossible Two, something, and I loved these sort of like swooping helicopter shots that came into a close up of Tom Cruise. And I said, what if we um, do something where to suggest, in my mind, it was to suggest that that every time we cut away from the climbing, we come back in the cave near where they used to be. But the camera flies through the caves and then comes into the scene each time with a, with an opening transition that feels like kind of sped up flying camera through the caves or down, down, down. And Rick's listening to me describe what I'm what I'm thinking about doing, and he's listening, and then he goes, "Whose point of view is that?" He said, "I think that's an alien's point of view." He said, Mm -hmm. "I think that's that's an alien flying through the planet, and uh, and is attacking them in some way. It'll be confusing to me, so no, don't don't. He didn't want me to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, which was a very you know, I told he's the boss. I respect his opinion on that, but I miss the opportunity in my mind, the energy and style of bringing something that, sure, you could say it's an alien point of view, but then we know it's not. As soon as we get there, we know it's just, it's a film device. But Rick was not, um, he was very conservative in terms of his rules of filmmaking. So to answer your original question, that's my long-winded way of saying. Mm -hmm. um,
0: So if anything, Star Trek was more old-fashioned than... Ironically,
1: Ironically yes. Series, you Ironically,
0: yeah, yes, it was. Right, right. I did notice in that in that Enterprise episode, though, there's a scene early on where you, it, it, it's very obviously got a, a sort of handheld camera, and so the camera's moving around. And I, I was quite struck by that watching it. And I was thinking, is that, I feel like that's not something that you see even in Star Trek all that much. Do you know what I mean? For a kind of meeting room scene, that it's kind of moving around a lot and, you, and you're kind of aware of that. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I, I sort of feel like we wouldn't have seen that in Next Gen or probably even in Voyager, you know.
1: I think Rick was very um, old-fashioned, yes. Um, traditional, I would I would say it's traditional. He, he really knew, I think he knew some of the rules. He was aware and very educated and smart about how films were made and uh, had been made for years and wanted, he was, I think he was concerned that too much like, um, trendy style, whatever the trends were, you know, that it would somehow date the franchise in a way that later on, if people looked back, they would be like, oh, that's an old filmmaking style from the 90s, or that's an old, you know. And I think he's right. You know, there's some things I look at now, even other things that I did shows that I directed on where Mm -hmm. I used um, some you know, kind of quirky tools. There was a, a lens called the, the, um, mesmerizer where the lens would roll around and it would sort of stretch and bend the sides. And we used that some on Star Trek, but I, I feel like no one uses that tool now. It it just feels right cheesy and old fashioned and dated, but I know we did it in Star Trek a couple of times, not just me, other directors had used those lenses. And, um, so I think Rick's instincts were probably smart is let's not date this in a way that when people look at it they feel like it's not relevant to them anytime they ever watch it so the safest way to do that keep it traditional
0: it's interesting i'm i'm curious thinking about that how some of the current star trek shows will look you know 20 years in the future because i know when discovery season one came out a lot of people were Complaining about the kind of swirling camera moves and saying they were, you know, they were feeling disoriented. With Picard, there was some quite sort of clever editing that was w- where you'd have kind of two two scenes cutting back and forth but sort of out of sequence and and, and kind of tricks like that that seemed qu- that slightly drew attention to themselves if you know what I mean. They were quite stylish, but um, yes. Uh, and I know some people love them and other people kind of felt like, oh, no, you know, this is not what we're used to. Those are like me, I guess, people who grew up on kind of 90s Star Trek. And maybe we did grow up with that quite sort of um, conventional approach in some ways. So I don't know. It'll be interesting. We'll find out, I guess, in decades to come whether Rick was right or whether yeah being sort of overly cautious there. Yeah. But, but I'm interested. So when you So when you were shadowing other directors working on Voyager, did you feel that the different directors who came to the show were able to kind of put their own stamp on it? Or was it very much that everyone was kind of forced to play within quite a constrained sandbox? Could you find moments of kind of uh, flamboyance or kind of, uh, you know, I, I suppose people always talk about the, the auteur or the, you know, whatever the, the, the alternative is, do you know what I mean? Are, are there yes. opportunities? Cause it sounds like what you were saying with that enterprise episode and your, your, crane shot zooming in and all this stuff that sounds like it would have been quite a bold striking visual uh moment but so i'm curious could could people kind of bring those slightly more off the wall ideas in and and get them through and 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 was their approach quite different from director to director
1: i would say that there was sort of a there was a the traditional approach became sort of a safety net on our show, and so all directors, mm-hmm. all directors could, they could rely on the fact that there was sort of a, a, a strong foundation and, and a, and a, a continuity, you know, episode to episode. That if they didn't have a strong idea or didn't have a way to push a boundary, that Marvin Rush and the camera department and the actors, all of us, we kind of knew you know, we had learned after the first couple of episodes what this show looked like, what it felt like, what, you know. Um, so, yeah, there was a nice, strong foundation, but there were a few directors. I mean, I think Rick Colby, who directed our pilot episode, he had a particular style that I can see when I watch his episodes. Um, he, you know, he had a certain tendency. Every director has their, um, I'm sure I do, too. We, we have our, our kind of Tricks isn't the right word, but our, you know, our bag of experience that we go to, that we we like, that we, you know, in a scene like this, where we're in with a character for a private moment and then someone surprises them and then, uh, you know, the scene unfolds, I know I have ways that I often approach that sort of moment. You know, that's a very common moment and I, I kind of have my my little bag of tricks that I use for those kinds of moments. So Rick Colby had his sort of bag of tricks that that I feel like I could identify and and see when he was directing. I think uh David Livingston had his bag of tricks. Um for David Livingston I'd say his his bag of tricks was mostly the wide angle lens. That was the thing that David would always push beyond the that foundation, you know, if we came into a, a briefing room scene and normally Marvin Rush might use a, you know, 40 millimeter lens for close-ups on an actor. Um, David Livingston would say, no, let's use the 14 millimeter. Like I want to be in. And, you know, it's a very different, it's a subtle difference between the, between those lens choices, but little things like that um, people could, could find a way to uh, put their own stamp on things. David had the wide lenses. I think Rick Colby had sort of the, The uh, slow uh, Dolly that revealed, you know, he always had foreground. Rick always had kind of a longer lens and foreground, whether it was another actor in the foreground or a piece of the set. And, you know, um, let's see who else um, we had. Um, Alan Craker. Alan Craker uh, would often direct um, in these kind of long Sequences where, let's say we're in the briefing room, the actors would, he would choreograph the actor's movement so that one line would lead to the next line, and the camera would always be panning or dollying, and so he would, instead of cutting to close-ups, Alan Craker would stage the scene in a way that the actors were helping to kind of walk past the next actor as it handed off to that line and then that that actor might move forward to reveal another actor behind and you know the the movement would flow in a way that alan craker was a was a master of that kind of moment so um that was in his bag of tricks so yeah i think every director's got their their comfort zone that they bring to it and uh and it was uh but sometimes a director could surprise you. We had a director on Voyager named Alex Singer. He was a an older director, had been around for, you know, at that point, 30 years or more as a director, um, had directed back into the 70s and even the 60s, I think. So we were in the 90s making the show, and he had been doing it a long time. But I remember Alex Singer had a very traditional approach, but then now and then, Uh, Alex would break out these great episodes that were surprising to me and in the way that he staged or shot the scenes, you know, low angles or, you know, very graphic kind of cinematic moments. And so um, sometimes it's a it's a directing, you know, directors get a lot of credit when sometimes they don't deserve it and they get a lot of blame when sometimes they don't deserve that either, Um, because I think, you know, television in particular, is a team sport. It's you've got to have the whole team playing well, and that includes the writer, that includes the uh, the producers, the physical production producers, giving you the money and the resources to do things well. Um, if everybody is on their game, the whole team is playing well together, and the actors are bringing it, and the director does a, you know, their part, then you'll have a great episode. Um, you can have a great director and. You know, if the whole team's not playing, even if the actors are given a great performance and the director's doing his best, if that or he or she, if uh, the director isn't given the resources to do do what they, you know, what what the the episode needs, it's it's you know, or the script is not great, or the story has a yeah. an element that just flops. There's nothing you can do. You know, you can shoot the coolest shots you want, but in the end, it comes down to a good story and good teamwork in, in executing it. So
0: it must be quite nerve wracking in a way if you've been lobbying for years to get this chance. And then so much, so much of that does kind of depend on the script because I was quite struck. Um, there's an episode of, I I love Deep Space Nine. It's probably uh, nothing against Voyager, but Deep Space Nine was always like my favourite series. But there's one episode of Deep Space Nine that I think anyone would say is like the worst of that show. And uh, just because it was a terrible, it was just just a terrible episode. And it was... um, and I hadn't even really clocked this but it was directed by Alexander Siddick and I just when I realised I thought God he's probably been you know waiting years like you for a chance oh, to direct an no. episode and then gets given a complete turkey I mean so there must be that kind of nerve-wracking moment so when you got the call saying you're, you're down to direct this episode you must have been kind of opening the script thinking you know what is it going to be because with Star Trek it could almost be anything do you know what I mean it can run the gamut from, from good to bad but also from you know romantic comedy to thriller to do you know what I mean
1: yes the genre. And the tones could change dramatically week to week you know within the star trek universe yeah you could you could tell a uh, you could have a comedy one week you could have a romance the next you could have a thriller or a horror film the next um i was um i loved the, my first script sacred ground because mm-hmm. um i would i would consider myself um a very introspective and and uh spiritual person i wouldn't call myself a religious person necessarily but there was a lot of spirituality and a lot of human um, experience the 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 core of human experience the wonder and the and the mystery and the uh, the unknown of the human experience that we all are dealing with constantly the fear the the deep primal human fear of existence that was a big part of that episode. And uh so it was um for me, and and it was a big Kate episode, and Kate and I got along great. So I was thrilled with my first script, and uh it was nerve-wracking, and I don't think I slept for weeks, and um was exhausted physically and mentally exhausted at the end. Um and then my second script I got the next year, I got a chance to do one called Unity. And I have to be honest, when I got that script, I was like, I don't think it works. I don't, I, I was not happy with that script and I really tried hard to find a way into that for myself. The way that I found for myself was I was actually reading a book at the time. Oh, what was the title of it? It was, it was a book about the, the fall of the Soviet uh, empire and um, the events that happened when when the Soviet union collapsed and all of a sudden these various um, you know, countries that had been joined as the Soviet union were now more independent. There was a lack of structure and unity. And ironically, I was reading that book around the same time and I was like, Oh, maybe if I kind of use this, this book and, and what I'm getting out of this book is some inspiration. At least I'll have a point of view. At least I'll have a way in. Cause I, I didn't feel like a, scene to scene and and as a script it wasn't one of my favorite scripts um i don't even recall who wrote it boy that's bad
0: but uh no no offense to them you know it, it happened. ken Bella, i've got it i've got it in front of me yeah well it's an interesting <laughs> he, he wrote a lot of episodes you know and i and i i think that that was quite it's quite it's an interesting one it's it's an it's an odd episode because it sort of doesn't do what you expect it to somehow but I, I think it's an interesting one but that's interesting that you you connected so much to sacred ground and i think it might have been a a surprising one in some ways because it is a very kind of as you say it's quite spiritual it's quite sort of mature contemplative sort of episode i have to say i mean i grew up watching voyager when i was like 13 or whatever and first watched that episode i didn't i didn't get it at all do you know what i mean it just completely it it, to me it was like this isn't what star trek is about star trek's about science and you, you know we don't we don't believe in all this spiritual stuff and it's only sort of going back to it like in my 30s that i was like wow this is actually i've obviously changed a lot because i was much more uh, on board with the kind of message of that episode somehow and receptive to that story but it's interesting i suppose you know for you as well because you're playing paris who uh i mean not quite so much by this point but certainly in the early years of voyager it seems like quite a kind of immature person do you know what i mean yes, like he's, yes. he's a bit of a was, I he's, he's a bit of a, a troublemaker in some ways um and then you get this script which seems very like i say much more mature much more kind of contemplative and and the way that you directed it as well i think the kind of pacing is quite sort of deliberate it feels it's it's unusual for a star trek story uh but it comes off very well i think
1: yeah i think uh, kate was very excited about it because she loved uh the ideas of it and the opportunity she had to play some of the the vision quest of it all and the frustration with the the people the the three people waiting um you know those character actors um Amazing character actors that we got for that episode.
0: They felt like they could have been in a in a Beckett play or something almost. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like a waiting for Godot moment or something. Mm. Um
1: Mm. uh, yeah, that I I love that script. I like I said, I didn't love Unity. Uh came back Mm. around a couple years later to direct someone to watch over me, which was Mm. for me my favorite one of my favorite Voyager episodes ever. But certainly, that was my favorite to direct uh, in that series because it it just landed in the sweet spot of personally my taste, which was uh, I, I really enjoy comedy. I've gone on to work on a lot of comedies, um, so that was an opportunity early on for me to to work some comedy, and I I had more confidence in my direct directing at that point, and uh, was able to bring some actors in as some of the smaller roles that I felt really happy about getting some of those uh actors in in for some of the smaller roles and yeah i just i is for me someone to watch over me was was uh a perfect episode in in every way it was just it was really wonderful and uh and then what is the other one i did body and soul body and
0: soul again a comedy with robert picard yes. and Jerry ryan i mean quite a different sort of tone i suppose but Uh, it sort of struck me, I was wondering, was that because they were so pleased with how someone to watch over me went that they gave you that one? Because it feels it's got some of the fact that it's those two and it's really playing off the strength of the two of them as characters and as performers. Yes. It has that in common, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think that they uh, as far as I know, I don't think they really matched (laughs) directors with scripts so much because they often didn't know what scripts were going to be ready and where things, you know, so they sort of slotted directors into a schedule and then you got the script you got. So I just Mm. happened to get a couple of those, um, the more comedic and, and, um, those fun episodes that, that were perfect, a perfect fit for me. You know, I was really happy Mm -hmm. that those those were the ones that I got.
0: So, if for unity your kind of your sort of touchstone was this serious book of history, what I'm kind of thinking, but Body and Soul is a strange episode because in some ways it's got a sort of dark element to it. It's got this sort of almost Anne Frank story about like hiding the person who's being persecuted, but it's played in such a broad comic way and it's it's almost like a sort of sex fast you know what i mean because it's like everyone is seems to be attracted to someone who's not attracted to them and there's all this kind of um, right. <laughs> I, i'm just kind of curious you know was there do you do you always go in thinking okay that this is what's at the back of my mind this is my sort of inspiration or this is my do you know what i mean this is kind of yeah. where i'm coming from or do you just read the script and think okay i'll just sort of take what's on the page
1: well i think for me when i as a director when i break down a script i read through it and i try to understand what the writer's two things are in the first read you know what is the writer's intention first of all what are they trying to achieve as I'm as I'm reading this and the second thing I, I try to think about is is kind of note the things that inspire me what are the the impressions or images that come to mind as I as I have that first read because often that's that's really important but then as I start to sort of deconstruct it and start to break it into parts and pieces I always try to first start with kind of a thesis statement or a point of view. And, you know, if, if I'm now, um, you know, training a director or if I've got someone shadowing me now, that's, that's very important. I always want directors. If I'm producing now, I want a director to have a point of view. I don't want them to come in and, Mm -hmm. and try to please the writer or me or, or even the actors. I want them to have a point of view so that they know constantly, Where their guiding light is on this episode, you know, Um, I was even taught to, you know, come up with my director's thesis statement to say this is a story about greed will lead to destruction, whatever that simple, you know, a will, you know, uh, create B. (laughs) like come up with that, you know, because then, you know, sort of where the story starts. And what happens and where it will end, you know, that thesis statement, your point of view about it and kind of distilling that down to something universal and relatable so that that's the story I'm telling is something that people can, you know, that that I am telling a specific story in this episode that I'm directing a specific story, but it's about something I want the audience to experience something at the end that is deeper and bigger than just this this comedy or this, you know, whatever it is.
0: I was quite struck because you, you talked quite a lot on your podcast, The Delta Flyers, which is a fantastic podcast I recommend to any of our listeners who haven't checked it out yet Um, it's always fascinating to me to hear you're kind of uh sort of discussing things from the directorial uh perspective but when you talked about sacred ground you talked about some of the prep that you did for that episode yeah um in terms of individual characters motivations like you, you know who who's kind of driving the scene like you said whose point of view is it but also what are they trying to get out of it and so on and it seemed to me very much like the way that an actor might prepare for a scene by, I suppose by going through the script and asking themselves all these questions, you know, what's my motivation? What am I, you know, what am I trying to achieve? All these sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it kind of really struck me that that is a very, I suppose it's a, it's a psychological approach to preparing for it rather than, I mean, I'm sure you are preparing technically as well, but the fact that you, put that much effort into that side of it, I suppose is, you know, maybe a testament to coming at it from an actor's point of view and knowing what might be useful for the other actors and how to get the most out of them.
1: As an actor, one of the most important things that any actor needs to know when they're working on a scene, shooting it or performing it on stage, whatever, the acting process is about a character always isn't isn't passive in a scene. Even if the scene is really about the other character in our story, it might be about the other character doing, achieving something or trying to get something. If I'm the supporting character in that scene, I'm not there for no reason. I'm there. I'm in that scene. I'm either cooking my dinner and that's what, you know, and and, and the lead character walks in and and does something. And so there's something that I want. I want to finish dinner. I want to finish cooking dinner. <laughs> And so I know that that, that's an active thing as an actor. Okay, my character starts by wanting to have dinner, and by the end, wants this character who arrived to get the heck out of my house. (laughs) You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's always a, a turn. I use that term a lot with directors or with actors or writers when I'm prepping now. You know, every scene has a turn, and it has multiple, it has a turn from a narrative perspective. That the story changes. If the story doesn't change in a scene, then the scene needs to go. Like the scene doesn't belong in the movie. Uh, So there's always a turn, a narrative turn, where something, new information comes and the story moves forward. Uh, There's also a turn for each actor. Every character should have a turn where they come into the scene, they start the scene uh, wanting something actively trying to do something, whether it's cook dinner or, you know, stop the suicide bomber or whatever the stakes are, you come in wanting something and then there's new information, narrative information, and your character now is changed and leaves Mm -hmm. the scene with a new want, a new thing. So I think that that pattern of looking at scenes that way as an actor definitely informed how I look at scenes as a director or as a producer um I always look at it from where is where's the turn where's that narrative turn happening where's that character turn happening where what is the want of each of these characters what is the driving need that they have whether it's dinner or saving the world whatever it is there's a need there's got to be and there should be some stakes there because we're creating entertainment and drama um or comedy <laughs> whatever it is. you know there can be comedic stakes as well but but having a scene where nothing changes and no one has changed is not a very interesting scene to work on a, a, as a director or an actor. And it's definitely not fun to watch as, a, as an audience. You want to see things, things happening to people and characters, things happening to your story. So, yeah, anyway.
0: I'm kind of curious. I mean, hearing a bit about your prep process you must have been conscious with other directors coming on and and even other directors from within the cast you know you mentioned Roxanne Dawson was kind of on the same path you were on I know uh, Robert Picardo and Tim Russ later on were you know involved in in directing I mean did different directors bring very different sets of you you know what was in their kind of their their bag of tricks in a way uh, in terms of the preparation they'd done and the questions that they'd asked and the kind of you know what's in their sort of toolkit must be must vary a lot from person to person
1: yes it does it does I think um um yes all of those all of those people you mentioned had different approaches as actors mm-hmm. to to the way that they worked um you know when I was when I was acting one of the other things that was very important to me was to be to try to have some specific ideas about You know, lines, how a line should deliver a joke or uh, information or um, but also be open to the unexpected to be spontaneous to as an actor. You want you, you I want as an actor to be as spontaneous and reactive as I can to the things that I don't expect what the other actor brings. So I do that. I try to do that as a director. Now I have a plan. I have my homework I've done. But if I get out there and rehearse the scene and and maybe the actor decides to do something I didn't expect instead of going no 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 that's not in my plan I I would I try to go oh, wow how can I incorporate that and add to what I've planned so the scene gets even better it has my ideas and the actor's ideas and the prop guy had a funny idea about the prop you know sure I think all of these ideas can be Um, that I can be open to things that I don't plan or expect. Um, I would say that sometimes, and I don't mean Roxanne or Tim or Bob, because we were talking about them, I'm not pointing a finger at them, but sometimes what can happen is a director can come in and say, can say, here's my plan. And, you know, you're not supposed to stand over there. You need to stand over here and you need to look this way and, you you know, and all of a sudden." Uh, there's not the flexibility and and the you know the value of other perspectives you know and so I really don't I I really don't like it when I'm producing these days and I'll see a director maybe who comes in and you know is is trying to force the cast or force the the camera into uh, some shot they have in their head instead of looking at what's really happening and you know. <laughs> that shot would have been great if the sun wasn't setting, but now the sun's setting and it's over there. And maybe we should point the camera the other way. And maybe that actor doesn't want to wander, wander around in circles. Maybe they just want to stand there and look. And I don't know, there's all all of these little nuanced details that if you're open to the unexpected and new ideas and, and new ways of looking at things, and you still have that foundation of your prep and your plan and your own ideas your own point of view, if you're open to putting all of that together and, and and then you get the best, the best uh, version of, of the scene, I think, you know,
0: did you find that having directed on the show changed the way that you acted on it in some ways? I mean, and also, I suppose, having other actors on the show who were directing, I mean, you and Roxanne, must, you know, were working a lot together as actors because your characters were in a relationship and you were also both kind of developing as directors. I mean, did these two things, did, did they feed into each other? I guess is what I'm wondering. Was it, was it going both ways to some extent?
1: Um, I think so. It's funny, Roxanne and I didn't, we didn't talk about directing a lot. Honestly, I mean, we did some It wasn't that we never talked about it, but it's not like we, you know, constantly were talking about all the technical aspects or, you know, yeah. judging, you know, how directors were doing or constantly sharing our thoughts and our feedback with each other. But we did talk about it some, I think, probably on some level, I think, for me, directing uh, built my confidence in In being there and kind of relaxing a bit into, you know, a sense of belonging or, you know, ownership of the connection to the material, even just the series as a whole. So, um, yeah, I do think that it, it definitely changed the way that I that I felt, you know, as an actor on the show. And it also informed how I r- responded to our guest directors, you know, when I was an act. I think before that I was, you know, sometimes very skeptical, a little, you know, maybe maybe even a little more resistant. Um, I definitely had a lot more sympathy for, you know, the predicaments of of directors when they're running out of time or, you know, the shots not working in some way. I I, I was much more sympathetic to to those people in, in that position or if they were given a not great script and they were struggling to try to make it better i was much more sympathetic to oh i i get you know how hard this must be for you how can i help
0: so then you you mentioned after voyager ended you directed uh four episodes of enterprise i'm wondering was that i mean did it feel like very much the same experience as working on Voyager or did it feel, I I know the episodes were slightly shorter. I don't know whether that affected kind of the pacing or anything. I mean, did it, it, what was it like sort of going into a new Star Trek cast who you, you know, you're not a member of the cast in that instance. You are sort of someone coming from outside, albeit a kind of extended family member in a way. Um, That must've been quite a different experience in some ways.
1: Yeah, it, it was very different because on Voyager, I was there for every episode. All year long. When I directed on uh, Enterprise, I think I did one a year, probably (laughs) you know one episode. So I certainly was not up to speed with you know the temperament of the cast at any given time of year. You know, I'd kind of step into wherever they were they were as a group, Um, and I did feel like an extended family member. But you know, the short it was a short visit as as the extended (laughs) family member. I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't doing multiple episodes and, um, and yeah, I think it was, um, yeah, it was a good experience to direct on enterprise. I love Scott Bakula. I've worked Mm -hmm. with him on four or five different shows over the years. He's amazing. And, uh, and the rest of the cast was, was awesome. I thought they were, they were all really good. It was the same crew that we had had on Voyager. So definitely with a crew and the ADs and that behind the scenes group of people it it always felt like a wonderful homecoming to go back e- you know each season and do an episode with those guys it just it it was it was nice to know there was this this home to go to once a year because the other episodes i was directing outside of enterprise at that time were some of my early episodes of you know Dawson's Creek or the show Summerland i was working on or the OC or I can't remember what else I was doing back then. Everwood, that first season, a lot of a lot of uh, you know, very different kinds of casts and franchises and, and and places, you know, I was shooting on location a lot more than we ever did on Star Trek. So I was learning a lot about how to deal with location filming and all the elements that 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 involves and so going back to Enterprise was always um yeah, it was always a, a a relief. You know, it was very comfortable and very comforting.
0: It's interesting thinking about it. Enterprise, I think, is the only Star Trek show that didn't have, as far as I know, unless I'm you know missing something didn't have members of the cast who ended up directing now i know it got cancelled earlier than they were expecting so i don't know i mean were there when you were directing on the show were any of the cast shadowing you was there a sense that anyone was mm. planning to kind of pursue that because every other star trek show that people had taken that opportunity hadn't they yeah um but it seems like on that one they didn't for some reason
1: i don't think so i don't recall i mean i think i know scott yeah. Bakula has directed before i think he directed on quantum mm-hmm. leap and- And I think maybe there was some, you know, some conversations that Scott had had with them about directing at some point, but Mm. um, I don't know how serious that was. But with the rest of the cast, besides Scott, I don't recall anyone ever talking to me about, uh, you know, shadowing or directing or no, I I don't. I don't remember that, which is, yeah, quite unusual. Actually, I'm surprised Mm. that there wasn't more you know uh having seen a couple of star trek shows at that point a few of them um you know produce some directors with directing careers that none of the actors seemed you know serious seriously interested in in that yeah
0: i mean there's no reason why they should be necessarily it's just that it's it's interesting that that on all the other shows bit by bit people did you know decide actually yeah you know maybe it's partly from seeing i guess jonathan freke's probably started it all off and then other people were you know probably patrick stewart thought oh well if he's doing it i'll i'll do one and you know do you know what i mean and it kind of it builds into a thing that is is sort of if not expected then at least on the table somehow um it's interesting having said that you you know you kind of gravitated more towards comedy the enterprise episodes you did i would say are generally pretty serious aren't they um, yeah they, they are. are yeah i mean twilight's a big fan favorite episode quite intense you know aside from the big kind of plot drama i mean i think you had probably the best cold open in star trek history because you got to blow up earth but aside from all that kind of big big stuff there's also this you know very sad kind of dementia storyline essentially yeah you know quite moving and 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 the other ones yeah you know cold front Picking up on this kind of serialized storytelling, that I guess you're coming in, you're pick, you're taking a piece of that and then kind of passing the baton on for you know very different kind of storytelling, I guess, to the sort of more episodic stuff you'd be doing on Voyager. And then by the time you get to Countdown again, you know, which is the penultimate episode of that season-long arc, so very much kind of in that serial style, um, it, that that must bring its own challenges in a way. You're you're not kind of packaging your own little uh you know like you said one week it's a court and drama one week it's it's whatever you're, you're kind of trying to fit into that ongoing narrative and that ongoing sort of style yeah. in a way that seamlessly they, in that they don't really want each episode to feel different or each director to bring something too different to it because it needs to really flow in that kind of storytelling
1: yeah i um, i i really relied on the actors and the crew there um mm-hmm. You know, and, and and whenever I would come in on that show, I would I would try to catch up on some of the cuts, even if they hadn't been aired yet. I'd go back and read the scripts, you know, that led up to my episode or look at the cuts of the episodes to see how they were executed and shot and uh, um, mm-hmm. and try to fit into uh, the ongoing, you know, narrative there Um yeah, there wasn't a lot of comedy, though, on, on Enterprise, mm-hmm. um, which is is it's it's funny because a lot of times, you know, actors can get typecast into, um, you know, oh, they're a comedic actor. So they only do comedies or, you know, sitcoms mm-hmm. or they're, you know, uh, a serious actor. They can't do comedy. Uh, the same thing happens for directors often is that you sort of get typecast. When I first finished Voyager, I did a lot of Dawson's Creek episodes. Um, I became kind of a uh, an ongoing regular director there, doing a lot of episodes. And uh, for a few years, I was sort of typecast as a director in the teen soap opera. At the time, it was the WB network. You know, I was sort of typecast as a director in. Oh yeah, he does those Dawson's Creek, The OC, the you know the those. Um, Soapy dramas Mm -hmm. with teen
0: Teen relationship dramas. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, I feel, I feel very lucky actually that I've been able to, because I do enjoy comedy. I I just, as a human being, I like, Mm -hmm. I like being on a set where people are, are laughing and, um, where, you know, I do feel like in, in the human experience, a lot of times, Humor is what gets us through all the tough stuff and, and, and through a big chunk of our day, you know, we, we, uh, we laugh, people like to laugh. And so um, I feel very lucky, like, you know, I I did the show Chuck for five years, we did that Mm -hmm. show. And uh, for me, Chuck was the perfect combination of comedy and heart and action, because I got to do all those things on Chuck uh, as a producer and a director on that show. And, um, and for me, that's, that's my favorite, um, style that my, my favorite genre is sort of that action comedy with heart, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. It's fun as a director. You can do a lot of different things in terms of staging and shooting and stylistically, you can do a lot of things that, uh, it's a, it's a big palette that you can play with in that sort of action comedy world or, um, whereas when you're just doing straight drama, um, the palette gets a little thinner, a little narrower because you've <laughs> got to keep that tension going. You've got to keep that, um, you know, that, that, that narrative going in the drama and, yeah. the, and the, and the, and the kind of visual drama as well. You know, it always needs to have a bit of uh tension and, and, and so, um, I like being able to mix it up. And I feel very lucky that I've been able to move from you know uh, uh, sci-fi shows to half hour comedies, straight out flat flat out comedies to you know shows like Chuck that are a mashup of of uh, of tones. and uh, and uh, you know i I think the show that I, one of the shows I'm doing right now i'm I'm lucky i'm I'm actually producing two shows right now uh resident alien is one of them on sci-fi network in the states uh alan tudyk is the star and it's it's a lot like chuck it's a one-hour action comedy sort of character comedy with some sci-fi elements and um and i love it it's got a ton of heart but it's also got great comedy and jokes and uh chris sheridan the creator of the show wrote on family guy for 18 years so he's He's uh, brilliant at dialogue and and coming up with wacky ways of looking at the world. Uh, so Resident Alien is one of those dream jobs. It's got the mashup of 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 tones. I get to play comedy and drama and sci-fi. Um, and my other show is Turner and Hooch, which is on Disney Plus, um, coming out July 21st this year. Um, Turner and Hooch has a ton of comedy. Josh Peck, our lead actor. Um, is amazing s- incredibly talented and uh the whole cast is really good so we get to do a lot of procedural action chase the bad guy stuff but mixing it up with comedy and and dogs you know moments with a dog with a
0: dog i was gonna say yeah <laughs> i guess at least on enterprise you got a little bit of practice uh, working with a dog but working with a dog in every episode must bring a lot of challenges too
1: it uh, definitely does bring a lot of challenges but um mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a you know it's fun and exciting cuz you you know you never know what the dog's going to do and you got to be flexible and mm-hmm. <laughs> and um sometimes you get really lucky um but yeah that the the tone of those both the shows I'm working on these days are a perfect fit for me because uh, I I really enjoy that I don't think I would want to be on a straight drama right now you know that's just all mm-hmm. a courtroom drama or some some straight, even even a sci-fi drama that's just all that doesn't have a sense of humor. That's one great thing about Trek is mm-hmm. there's always been a bit of a a light sense of humor. I think Discovery does it well. I think Picard does it mm-hmm. well. I, I hope I think we did it well with uh, mm-hmm. you know the Doctor and Neelix and and Tuvok even making jokes now and then and Paris trying to make jokes when he could. Um, you know, there's a, there's always been a bit of uh, Uh, a touch of of humor and comedy in in star trek that i i always love
0: well even going back to the original series that was such a key part of it wasn't it you know kirk spock and mccoy and that kind of antagonistic uh sort of bickering almost aspect of it i think the, the comedy coming out of the characters what about um i know you've directed a few episodes of the orville which obviously is is kind of basically marrying 90s star trek with comedy in a sense um what about the new Star Trek series? Because obviously Jonathan Frakes has been doing quite a lot of directing on a few of them. It seems like they're announcing new ones all the time. They're, they're constantly producing them. I mean, if you got the call, is that something you'd be interested in doing, going back and sort of going back into the Star Trek fold?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would I would love to get involved. I uh, When Discovery was first uh, coming together, um, mm. I know there was some conversations about me directing on that show early on, but I... I tend to spend most of my time producing mm-hmm. now. And when I'm producing, I'm on a show kind of full time. And uh, yeah. and uh, I I wasn't available when they were figuring out their first round of directors. And ever since then, I just haven't, you know, the stars haven't aligned. I did talk to Terry Metalis about Picard season two. And mm-hmm. uh, he and I've had a couple of conversations, a few conversations recently and re- kind of reconnected, which has been great. And Terry had talked about bringing me over there as a director or as an actor bringing tom paris out. they but the it, it's it's really been about schedule um mm-hmm. so I'd love to do Picard I actually loved I loved that first season and mm-hmm. they they asked they asked me to do a an episode of Picard the first season, but I as an actor to play Tom Paris really. Yeah, I wasn't available.
0: Oh, what a shame! That was going to be my next question. Was would you? Because obviously, you know, we have seen well. Kate Mulgrew is coming back in animated form. We've had uh, Jerry Ryan, obviously, in Picard, and you know, obviously Patrick Stewart and and uh, Jonathan Frakes, Marina Sirtis, and so on, and Brent Spiner in that show. I mean, it does seem like this is the time for you know star trek to kind of call in (laughs) call the extended family back in a way if you know what i mean uh and yeah we could have had captain tom paris saving the day on one of those shows
1: yeah they uh they had uh they talked to me the first season about just uh uh it wasn't a big it wasn't a big uh sequence or of scenes or whatever it was a couple scenes with uh with Patrick, I think it was just like view screen stuff or maybe some, you know, in his Mm -hmm. office or something. It wasn't, wasn't a lot, they were trying to work it out so that it wasn't a lot. So I, the schedule might work, but it didn't, it didn't pan out. So, Mm -hmm. and Terry's Terry's brought that up as well on Picard season two, that they've been trying to figure Mm -hmm. that out. But I'm, I'm, I just finished Turner and Hooch. We wrapped up just recently and I'm right back into resident alien. So probably won't Mm -hmm. happen
0: anytime soon.
1: I don't think so. I'd love it.
0: And if we get Tom, surely we've got to get Balana as well. I mean, we want to you know know that the two of them are still together and <laughs> living happily ever after, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I did pitch to them. I've had this idea for a number of years about doing a, a Captain Proton on the holodeck only, get our cast back mm. together, do like a serialized, like the old Flash Gordons, like short little... Short Mm -hmm. little, you know, stories that add up to a bigger story. And I thought about trying to produce it as a podcast during COVID. Um, I thought that might be fun, do an old radio drama with Captain Proton, but get our actors, all of our actors back together. And I actually talked to Kurtzman's company Mm -hmm. and those guys about producing either a podcast version of Captain Proton or a web series or you know, uh, short treks kind of version with just Captain Proton. Cause I think that would be, you know, people really love that, that holodeck and uh, I love doing that character. And I just think the fans would really love the, you know, the, uh, the show within a show kind of idea of the Captain Proton yeah, yeah. commenting on sci-fi generally and Trek sci-fi, you know, tropes yeah. and things. It's just uh, a lot of fun.
0: Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Captain Broton turned up in Lower Decks, because they already had Leonardo da Vinci, you know, the Voyager hologram of Leonardo da Vinci cropped up in one episode. I feel like that would be the show that could easily just port all of that in, in a way. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that. And I bet they'd love to do a black and white episode, you know. Yeah. So who knows? something to look forward to anyway um well thank you so much for joining me it's been fascinating uh hearing you you know sort of what it was like behind the camera on star trek um it's been a really interesting insight into those episodes that you worked on and and great to hear how star trek kind of you know gave you that springboard for a whole new career afterwards
1: yeah it has been it's worked out it has worked
0: out (laughs) You're blended already.